Hello, and welcome to the Plant Native Nebraska podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Barlman. If you are new to tuning in, this show is for native plant enthusiasts, aspiring gardeners, suburban homeowners, growers, and thinkers anxious to learn more about growing Native American plants and creating habitat for wildlife. If this sounds like you, you've come to the right place. Today's episode is about the legacy of prairies with Dr. Kay Kodas. Kay has a doctoral degree from the University of Nebraska, where she studied Nebraska's federally endangered blowout penstemon. Today, she is sharing information with us about Prairie Legacy, her botanical consulting company, and native plant nursery, and much more. Enjoy. Hi, Kay. Hi, Stephanie. How are you doing? Doing good. Well, thanks for being on the show with us today, Kay. Um, I'm oh, excited. It's great. I'm excited to talk about prairies um, because I am not super educated on that front. I I know a little bit about the plants from like a suburban perspective. Um, so that'll be really exciting to get to know more in depth about the short grass and the tall grass prairies. Yeah, that's great. I eat, sleep, and drink prairie. So that's great. Nice. All right. Well, you're the right person for this phone call then um, for this podcast. Can you tell us just to start, can you tell us a little bit more about your educational background? Oh, oh, sure. Um, yeah. So I studied at the University of Nebraska. Um, I actually got interested in native plants because one of my instructors in a landscape design class kept talking about, well, this one's native and that one's native and this one's not. What on earth does that really mean? And I just dug right in. Um, but yeah, I have degrees in horticulture and botany, um, um, minor in business. And then I went on and got a PhD and studied the blowout penstemon, which is um, Nebraska's only federally endangered plant species. Um, and just, I was doing surveys um, while I was in graduate school and while I was teaching and just um, developed into a business from there. That's awesome. I don't know too much about blowout penstemon. I've read about it a tiny bit. Um, is that one of the one of the ones where we hear about it, but you can't really source it because it's so rare? Well, yeah. So because it's federally endangered, it is protected and therefore you can't collect seed or the plants without a permit. And most of the populations are on private land. So it's difficult to, to go see it. There are a couple of places where it's on public land where a person could go to see it, but it's... Um, it's and it's also because it grows where it grows in the, in the blowouts. Um, it doesn't. It wouldn't grow in your backyard, for instance. So it's not something that you would see in the trade industry. Gotcha. That's really good to know because I think some people will, from time to time, like hear about a plant and they're like, "Oh, great! Where can I get that?" And and you know, for for me, even there's a learning curve. Like there's some plants that we can get for our gardens and we can help you know, kind of give a little population boost to that specific plant. But then there's some plants like the penstemon that that are just, they're rare mm -hmm. and they're protected and they're where they are. And we can, the best we can do is learn about them or learn what we can do as a society to like 
not contribute to climate destruction mm -hmm. or uh, habitat destruction. Exactly. Okay. Um, and, and I know, I know from personally, I know you're the president of the Nebraska Native Plant Society. And mm -hmm. can you tell us more about how the Nebraska Native Plant Society got started or um, things, you know, you, you're kind of in charge of being the president of that group. Sure. So Nebraska Native Plant Society, oh gosh, I'm trying to remember how many years ago that got started, uh, but it was a group of, um, of professors from University of Nebraska who got together and actually the librarian on East Campus was um, the instigator of the group and just got a, a bunch of people together who you know, were deeply involved with um, native plant species and started the group that way. And it's just been um, a group where we could go to different prairies and learn about what was there and, you know, see what is, is rare, you know. Um, and so we do um, some talks. Uh, we've got a talk coming up in, um, let's see, the 21st, I believe it is at 630 on East Campus, where we have an individual who um, Nebraska Native Plant Society supported her research. And so she is uh, going to do a presentation on her research that day. Um, and we, you know, we will do other um, uh, tours and things like that throughout the summer. Um, we're hoping to get, I've been talking with Kelly Kindshear from Kansas, who's uh, an ethnobotanist, about coming and talking to us this fall. So we we do things like that and try to help educate the people and support people doing research on native plants. That's awesome. Ethnobotany is always fascinating to me. That's like a, a weird rabbit hole I've been going down lately with like purchasing a few books. So I'll be sure to tune into that because I'm interested Great. in that for sure. Um. So one thing we could kind of segue into um, is Prairie Legacy, because um, I haven't asked you anything or you haven't really said anything about your business, Prairie Legacy, yet. Right. So how, how did that business enterprise get started? Well, kind of like I, like I told you, um, we um, I did a lot of survey work on, on native plant species and, and um, just had folks asking me to do that and it just evolved into that after I got my PhD um so but it, we really I really started getting into seed production when doing those surveys we noticed that there was just a dearth of genetically appropriate native seed and plants to be had in Nebraska so I started looking for a place to remedy that situation so in addition to doing, um, you know, um, scientific analysis and vegetational uh, environmental surveys and threatened endangered species surveys, now we also work very hard to get native plants and seed into the hands of people who want to plant local ecotype habitat for pollinators just to bring back the biodiversity and climate stabilization that they provide. Um, so we work a lot with prairie restorations and that sort of thing now too. That's awesome. I, I'm loving it. So, and I know you told me previously that, um, part of, part of the facet of Prairie Legacy is this homestead that's been passed down in your family. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So that's actually where we're located. That's the spot that I found, 
Um, when I was looking, it just turned out that the family homestead was up for sale. And so I purchased it from my cousin. So it's where my great, great grandparents homesteaded. Um, and we call the farm Wits End Homestead after my great, great grandparents, the Wits. Um, so they were the first of uh, about three, four families that came here and homesteaded here. So their home still exists today. It's on the National Registry of Historic Places. And it's a really unique home. It's got very unique architecture. It's built with wooden pegs and no nails. Um, it's still, it's got the uh, uh, waddle and daub, I guess they call it, which is, you know, the brick from, made from limestone found uh, nearby. And I've actually um, submitted a grant request and we're hoping to get it restored so people can come see it. Um, so, but we're located, it's about 50 miles from Lincoln or 100 miles from Omaha. Um, but actually we're as close as your computer or your phone because um, we do have, you know, a website where folks can find us. That's awesome. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions because there's been... Um, some confusion when people ask me about Prairie Legacy, where exactly you're located, because I'm in Bellevue. A lot of the people I talk to are in Omaha, Papillion, Elkhorn. Mm -hmm. um, so what what city exactly is Prairie Legacy Farm operated in? Um, it's the town is called Western, but it's in southeastern Nebraska. So it's, it's confusing when people ask me, oh, I'm in western Nebraska. And they think they're going to have to go to Sydney to see me. But <laughs> we're actually in southeast nebraska so gotcha. we're just north of fairbury or just south of wilbur so if people know those towns that's where we're located awesome and i guess that kind of ties into another question i wanted to ask you so that people know i wanted to ask you about you know plant sales you do i know last year i saw you at Mulhalls. they had their wild plant party and i remember you being there with some people from sure. your crew so can you mm -hmm. tell us more um, about plant sales you like to do every year or you oh, know, sure. have lined up to this for this year? Yeah, sure. So um, right now you can order online or just email me. Um, we always do this 15% off spring sale through the end of April. And so online there would be a coupon code. It's just spring 15 and it's... Um, you know, all lowercase and no caps. Um, but for those who, who live or work in Lincoln, we deliver to Lucky Dog Acres um, once a week in Lincoln. Um, and so you can just come pick things up there. We'll also be in Lincoln for Return of the Thunderbirds, which is a festival at the Indian Culture Center. And that's April 1st. Um, and we'll bring seeds then it, whether or not the weather will be nice enough for plants is a questionable thing and on April 1st, but, um, then we'll be in Lincoln again for Earth Day on April 15th and we'll have lots of plants there. Um, we also typically have a delivery day in Omaha the last week of April, um, usually on the Saturday. Um, hopefully we'll be at Mulhalls again this year. That's really been a great great place to meet people who are excited about native plants. Um, and, you know, I just want to remind people, though, that we also ship through USPS and typically plant seed will get there the next day. Um, since all of our mail goes through Omaha before it goes anywhere else, 
Um, but we also can ship larger orders via speedy delivery, that kind of thing. So, um, I love your so shipping. Yeah. It's been great. Like I order it and it, like it's two days later and it's already here. I'm like, what? This is awesome. So I've great. enjoyed the fast shipping for sure. Uh, so that that kind of segues in, us into the fact that you also sell seeds because, you know, people are like, where can I buy native plants? And sometimes one of those forgotten areas is, you know, you can also buy native seed. You can grow things from seed. Mm -hmm. You can buy wildflower mixes. Uh right. How do you determine what seeds you're able to sell? Like how does a native native plant supplier determine what seeds are best able to sell to the public? That is a really good question. And the answer for most retailers is that whatever they can find wholesale in terms of native, um, and that's relative to where they can find it. And it's not necessarily what's appropriate for our area when they buy something that's native. So they have to have that knowledge base of, you know, what's native to the area where they're actually selling. So most prepackaged native seed and mixes have a lot of wildflowers that are native to Europe or China or the Gulf states, but not really to Nebraska or Iowa area. And it, it becomes difficult to determine what native means in those cases. You did a really good job on your first podcast of um, talking about what native is prior to what was here prior to settlement is is so you basically have to set a time frame for that, um, but it's more than two. It's more than what looks good in a yard. Um, we talked about block penstemon before, which is regulated. It looks beautiful. It smells wonderful, but you just can't grow it in your yard. Um, Wood lily, for instance, is another one that's native to Nebraska. It's a beautiful plant, but it just won't grow in southeast Nebraska. It needs some special conditions. But so this is how we do it, though. We seek out native remnant prairies to this area. So northern Kansas, southeast Nebraska, Iowa. And we get permission to collect there and we collect from our own native prairie here as well i have 75 acres of native um tall grass prairie so we'll get a lunch bag of seed or a handful of seed or you know whatever is appropriate to get from from that area we grow it out in our greenhouse we plant it out into seed plots um, to increase the amount of seed that we get and so what we sell is determined partly by our ability to find it and find a local source for it. Um, and to keep our seed plots established, we need zero generation seed. And partly um, it's dictated by what's commonly found in seed mixes for conservation reserve program, because that's where a lot of seed goes. But just to back up a second, zero generation seed means that's seed that's collected in the wild from a remnant prairie. Mm -hmm. So it's never been planted by with other seed. Um, so anytime though that we get say a, a seed mix from a conservation reserve program um, where a farmer will give us this list to see, this is what the NRCS wants us to plant in our conservation reserve plots. And anytime we get one of those seed lists, um, if they, and sometimes they do specify a non-native species in that mix, we will substitute it with a native seed mix, seed so that the entire mix will be um, a native seed mix, truly native to where it's going to be planted. 
And so, but, but that said, we're always looking for species that we don't have to increase our, you know, range of species that we can offer. Currently it's over 200 right now, um, but we never collect seed for reproduction somewhere where we can't determine that it's really a remnant source. So, you know, we're always looking for that source for, for some of these hard to get species. Um, things like spring bloomers um, that aren't adapted to disturbance or um, sometimes they're hard to harvest or um, just hard to reproduce without their original habitat. Um, native orchids, for instance, and then we talked about some others are uh, especially associated with the soil biota around them. And that makes it difficult to grow it in a greenhouse or even in a natural area if it doesn't have those particular microorganisms that are associated with it to help its root system collect nutrients. So um, spring bloomers I mentioned are, they're sparse and hard to get. Um, a lot of the, the reason for that is because um, they either they disperse their seed by popping open and shooting them out and you just have to get there at just the right time. Or, you know, a lot of these um, native remnants are grazed or, you know, and the cattle love to get those blooming plants. Um, but another really big problem with spring bloomers is that most of our remnants less than, you know, they're less than uh, 40, 50 acres in size, and they're always surrounded by agriculture and pesticides are sprayed every May. And when that happens and uh, the drift just gets to them and there's just not as many as as we would hope so so you know we we really we're trying to get some of those early season ones we're working on pecoon and pasque flower and prairie ragwort and wild parsley um and some of those things again it takes several years for for something like wild parsley to produce seed plus it's hard to find so and seed dormancy can slow down the process. There are just so many things um, that that make it hard to produce some plants, but uh, we're working on them. And yeah, if anyone has remnant prairie and they just, they wanna know what's there, just give me a call. I'd love to go see someone's remnant prairie. And, you know, if bonus, if we can collect seed from some of those species that are hard to find, so. I know you just answered yeah. a lot of the questions I've always had, like, you know, why, you know, for instance, I really followed Drew Granville's work. I think his work is fantastic. All these photographs and these details he shares about these plants growing in the wild. And every now and then I'll be like, oh, that one's awesome work. You know, how can I, how can I grow that in my garden? And I won't be able to find the seed or the plants anywhere. So you just answered a lot of my questions. Like, why can I not find this plant that someone shared mm -hmm. this photograph of? That makes a lot of sense. Can we, can we spend a little time talking about prairie? Cause I know that's one of the things I didn't really talk about in the first episode. Could mm -hmm. you give us a little information about short grass and tall grass prairies in Nebraska? Oh, wow. That is a loaded question. <laughs> yeah, it is. There's so much information. <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess, um, where would I start? So in Nebraska, tall grass prairie is mainly located in the eastern sections. Um, so what we would call, if you looked at a uh, 
map of the United States, Tallgrass Prairie would just be this line right down the middle of the U.S., um, all the way from Texas to North Dakota. And that's also one of the places that is the most developed. And the reason for that is because of the mollusks that were created here. So, so our when we think about prairie here, it's a really relatively young community. It's only like 8,000 years old, you know. So it developed here with, you know, the grazing and the fire and, you know, the Native American culture um, and how they kept it going. But there's only because it developed these really deep uh, soils with these deep, really deep root systems, it was just ideal for the agrarian societies come in and plow it up. And of course, so then we started settlements here and all of a sudden now we have less than 1% of Tallgrass Prairie left in most places. And like I said, most of those remnant prairies are surrounded by agriculture and they're, you know, less than 80 acres, some less than, you know, most of them are less than 40. So um, it becomes really difficult to find remnant prairies. And when you do, you have to be very careful because there's so much um, pesticide in the air and, um, you know. Um, and so then in Nebraska, then there's next to the Tallgrass Prairie, that kind of kind of gradiates into the sand hills where it's mixed grass prairie basically. And so it's a Tallgrass Prairie moving into short grass prairie that's, you know, in the panhandle and um, the southwestern part of the state. And, you know, so it just kind of gradually, uh, and it it's a whole different um, eco site there, you know, it's just because it's sandy soil and um, just very different. And then the short grass prairie is more, you know, towards the more rocky soils and that sort of thing. But, but we do have short grasses in the tall grass prairie. And, and um, so, you know, it's, it's all mixed, but <laughs> there's, that's, that's oh, actually there's... a really good primer. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think when you talk about, you know, basically a line kind of going through the middle of the country and that's, that's where the tall grass prairies found, that's really easy to visualize. Um, yeah. I know when I got started learning about native plants, one of the first things I was curious about, curious about was buffalo grass. And I didn't right. quite realize that buffalo Buffalo grass isn't traditionally found in the tall grass prairie, right? Is that one that's more of like a short grass prairie plant? No, on the contrary, uh, buffalo grass is found across the state. And I have a good batch of it here in my native prairie. And what I find is uh, you don't see it. If you're standing in a tall grass prairie, you may find some of it on a hilltop where it's drier or something. Um, but here, so it tends to crowd out other species when it's in a in a place it likes and where i find it here is where we drive because nothing mm. else will grow there and so if we we have a um a lane on one side of our property where it doesn't get driven very much but um driven enough that it's the soil is highly compacted and not much will grow there but buffalo grass just thrives there and so yeah we have quite a few patches of it here so but it it is here you just don't see it very much but um you'll find it on dry hilltops and things like that 
Yeah, that's interesting. Um, there's a rain garden project um, that we've been working on. We've been working on renovating this rain garden here in Bellevue. And there's a hillside with a lot of erosion where a lot of weeds had set in and we had to weed it pretty heavily. And one of the original designers of the garden had recommended we we put in some buffalo grass there. So that sounds like, from what you've said, that sounds like that will be a good spot yeah. for that to grow. Yeah. What I would caution people with though, with buffalo grass is if you put it in your yard and then you want to have this nice little pollinator patch, it will kind of take over. So you have to be careful what you're planting it with. Um, um, anything, anytime you plant anything in a cultivated area or a, you know, place where it's you know, it's a specimen plant, basically, it's going to get much larger than it would in the tall grass prairie where it's got all of this competition holding it back. So mm. that kind of feeds into something I'm excited to talk about with you. We floated the idea of talking about aggressive plants, like what plants you would deem too aggressive. And I love this question because I actually like some aggressive stuff. So I think it'd be fun to kind of debate this one out a little bit. What what plants do you think, <laughs> okay. like for the suburban gardener who's who's like, well, you know, I've I've listened to all this uh, talk about the prairie, and you know, I live here in the suburbs, so I want to grow what I can. What's something that you would say, don't grow this, or this might be too aggressive for the suburban okay. garden? Well, yeah. So there are. What comes to mind immediately are two species that I always caution when somebody orders these two plant species or seed for these two plant species, I always caution them about what it's going to do. One is Maximilian sunflower, which is a very tall species. Um, the birds spread the seed, widens, and and the, the plant itself um, will send out some runners. So it's a little bit... Um, a little bit aggressive. Um, it will even, if you plant too much seed of the Maximilian in a new prairie planting, it will even take over that prairie planting. Oh, so wow. you have to be very careful with it. Um, the second one is cup plant. Um, that one will sit, it'll, it's, it's another really stately plant and it's really fun to look at because, you know, it's cups at the stem and it's just it's got a square it's just really a fun looking plant but um when you give it space oh my goodness again the birds will spread the seed um and that plant will pop up anywhere it's really um it's it's really successful i guess you'd say at at starting from seed and so that one is, you know, you, you want to be careful where you put those because they will take over a space very rapidly if you're not careful. That's interesting. So, I hadn't, I actually hadn't guessed you would bring up those two because um, those are newer plants to me. I'm still learning about them. Yeah. And I know I've been recommending Maximilian sunflower because I read it's a good late forage plant for monarch butterflies. Yeah, so, kind of good yeah. to know a little backstory. Right. <laughs> so those two, and and the cup plant in particular, um, is is um, an invasive plant in New York. They don't even allow it. So I actually got because my I have a website, right, and I sell um, all over the U.S. I got a note from the New York um, Ag Department 
and they said, you know, you have a plant on your website that cannot be sold in New York. So, so I had to remedy that situation and say not available in New York yeah. <laughs> with that plant. So, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And so what plants would you bring up that, <laughs> oh gosh, <laughs> what well, did you expect me to bring up? Um, you know, wild mint is one that's talked about a lot as being aggressive. Um, so I definitely thought that, you know, at some point either you or I were going to bring that one up. I love it. Yeah. I love the way it smells. I think it's fantastic for like a hillside spot on a property where yeah. you don't really want to worry about it too much. You just want something that's going to take hold there. Um, yep. And it's, it's actually tremendous at bringing in the beneficial insects too. So yeah. Yeah. No, I guess I wouldn't, I wouldn't caution people about that one. I'd that's say, good. Yeah. good. I mean, and it's, it's shorter. Um, so it's right. like, it's one of those things where I don't see it getting too out of control because it doesn't get super tall. And I find, I find wild mint to be fascinating in a really shady spot. Cause you know, my, when I planted, it was kind of like a trial. I didn't have any experience. So I didn't expect it to take off the way it did in very full shade. Um, so I love it for that too. And I'm trying to think, you know, like, are there some other uh, plants that spread by runners or rhizomes that could be aggressive? Like, uh, like for example, like thicketing plants, do you sell anything that, that naturalizes or makes a semi-aggressive no. thicket? Well, you know, most native plants are bunch, bunch plants, a bunch of grasses or, you know, not a lot of them that do spread by runners. Um, when, when I think about runners, I think about wild strawberry or, um, like, um, Calerho poppy mallow. Those will spread pretty aggressively too, but they make great bee lawns. So yeah. Um, again, I wouldn't, no, I love them at all. I love both of those. The only thing I found about poppy mallow is it's even though it's it's kind of sparse and and wispy and it's uh it's definitely not like a very dense plant when you plant it. But I do find sometimes it kind of does these weird little climbs or curly cues around plants. Not at all something to like weed out where you don't want it. Um, and lovely when it flowers, the colors are just so mm -hmm. bright. They're almost yeah. unnatural. Well, you know what I like about that one too, is um, it will bloom all season long. So it starts blooming in May and blooms through the end of the year. It actually, about July, it starts to set seed and begins to look a little scraggly sometimes. But if you cut it back, mow it off, or, you know, it will rebloom and just, you know, it's great. It's such a <laughs> it's such it. a prolific seeder. There are so many if if you're someone who's like into seed saving or you want to start growing a native garden and saving the seeds. That's a great one because there's just so many seeds it puts out just from one right. plant. And I know you just like you just mentioned bee lawns, which is great. I know a lot of people are curious about turf grass, alternative plants or, you know, doing a little bee bee lawn mm -hmm. or bee garden on like a hell strip are there any other plants you would recommend for people looking to do something like that yeah well so with the bee lawns um what you want to do is um you have to have this matrix to plant into so i usually recommend um 
using some grass with it. So um, a really good short grass is um, um, blue grama. So it's not quite as aggressive as the buffalo grass, but um, it'll help you fill in that matrix a little bit. But then um, things like um, wild petunia, which, you know, that's one of those that shoots its seeds. And so it'll spread in your lawn a bit. Um, so strawberry, I mentioned that. That's easier to get started from plants than seed because you actually have to freeze the seed to get it to germinate. So um, even though we we put that into a B-Lawn mix, it won't, you won't see much of it until it freezes. But if you get plants, um, wild strawberry will spread quite well and becomes a really good ground cover. Another one is prunella. So prunella, um, let's see, self-heal, I believe is a common name for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's a really short plant and the bees just love it. Um, so if you can get that established in your lawn and that one, um, it has to reseed every couple of years, um, to keep going. Um, so, you know, having some, and you want some bare spots in your bee lawn for those ground nesting bees. So, um, so that's a good one. Um, I'm trying to think what else we put in there. Um, Cause you do, you do offer a bee lawn mix. Um, yes. that's kind of some of what you're pulling from is, is this right. mix, is it newer? Right. I, do, I don't remember seeing it last year. Is it something that's new this year? Yeah. So we've just kind of been experimenting with it a little bit. And, and so, um, I don't think I have it on the website yet, but we will be putting it on there. But so we've come up with a, you know, native seed is quite expensive. Um, we, and you can imagine, um, with the way we have to harvest it and clean it. So we have a the matrix mix, I guess you would call it, that, that we start with. Um, and then you can go, it just depends on whether you want to mow it or you don't want to mow it. Um, you can add some of the shorter species in there. You can go, you know, up to a couple of feet high if you want, or you can just try to keep it really low, but it just kind of depends on what people want. And so when people have asked for it, you know, it's been, a little bit different for each person. So, so we, but we do have one to put together that we'll get on our website here shortly and um, that people can start with. And we also, so we have a catalog of what's available and it's, it's really easy to, it's, it's in an Excel spreadsheet. You can sort through it to see, okay, what's this height? When does it bloom? What color is it? And that's also on our website. You can do that on our website as well. Um, but sometimes, you know, people like to just have that list of species in front of them, which um, we can certainly email to people if they want it. So, yeah, I know lists are super helpful for people, especially when you're starting out. I know the Nebraska Statewide Arboretum. I really heavily relied on their lists when I got started. They had these lists on their website and they're probably still there for, mm -hmm. you know, uh, native trees for Nebraska or. Right you know, native perennials for Nebraska. I was, I was basically pouring through all these lists because I didn't know anything about anything. And that was super helpful. There's a right. lot of information out there and it gets overwhelming. And I think we right. want it neat and tidy at that point. We're like, okay, just, right. you know, give me a list. Tell me what to look up. Tell me what to plan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so for someone starting out, um, 
a typical person living in Lincoln or living in Scotts Bluff or Plattsmouth, wherever you live, what is a way you would advise someone to prepare a site for prairie plants okay. or for seeding? Okay, so yeah, so it, it kind of depends on a couple of things. Um, it depends on what was there when you're starting, what's, what's, what's there right now? Is it lawn? Is it, you know, old crop ground? Um, and you know, what type of soil you have, obviously, is it clay soil, sandy soil? So it kind of depends on that, but the basic ways, there's a couple of different ways. One is if you um, are not averse to chemicals, say if you have a lawn is to just spray that lawn, wait a couple of weeks for it to die out and then just plant right into the lawn if you're if you're adding um, just plants. If it's a large area and plants are too expensive, you want to put down seed, you can just uh, drill right into it. And there are folks that'll drill, you know, an acre or two acres if you have an in acreage. So that's that's probably the easiest way. There's also smothering it or um, solarizing, and I would prefer solarizing over smothering. They both take, you know, several weeks to months to do, but um, with the solarizing, you also get rid of some of that seed that's in the ground, uh, whereas with smothering, you know, you might not get rid of some of the, the deeper rooted plants and the perennials. Um, I know I solarized uh, part of my garden when I was in Lincoln because we had um, we had just this massive amount of uh, bindweed. Um, but what happens is those plants are encouraged to shoot up new shoots, but then they cook in that mm. um, clear plastic. And uh, so they just keep coming back up and then they keep cooking off. And so it just ex exhausts the root system. So with that, um, that area, I didn't have that bindweed returning for 30 years. So that was just, you know, and of course I kept it there for, kept that plastic on for about three months. It's nice to hear that there's different ways of doing it. Cause uh, the other day I was listening to Benjamin vote and he was talking about how his company Monarch Gardens, they just, they do a treatment of herbicide usually like when someone has lawn that they want to convert to like a prairie garden, they just herbicide application and then they'll plant directly into the dead right. lawn. Um, I know I'm super lazy. So I've always experimented over the last few years, like different ways of doing things. Like we've gotten these big sheets of cardboard and laid the cardboard down, which I actually like. I like that approach when you're super, super lazy and you're like, you know what? I just want to lay this down and forget about it for a while, let it break down and then come back to it when it's all broken down and then do something here. I tried the I tried the solarization method, which I do like for the for the thing you were talking about where it continues to kill off things as they pop up. But I think I'm I either use the wrong kind of plastic sheeting or simply I just left it down there way too long. Cause when I I went out to check on it and it was like literally like disintegrating. I think the heat really mm -hmm. disintegrated. I like I thought, you know, oh, it's plastic. You know, they always say plastic doesn't break down. And so we're good. Like I'll just leave it there. 
and then I'll come back it and does, I think I had just yeah. left it way yeah. too long. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. So yeah, they've done experiments on what mill, mill thickness of um, uh, clear plastic works the best. And they found that the thinner mills actually do a better job of cooking the ground, but they don't last as long. So, mm. so if you can get something that's about a four mill, that will last most of the summer. But, gotcha. Well, maybe I, I probably just left it too long. That's, that's the easy explanation. I think <laughs> yeah. it was, it was definitely longer than three months. I won't say how yeah. long, but it was longer than three months. Yeah. Well, it will, it will break <laughs> down. <laughs> I want to kind of shift gears a tiny bit and talk about what plants you would specifically recommend for certain areas, like your favorite recommendations for like a shady area, for instance. Okay. Yeah. So that's, it's hard for me because I love native plants. I mean, can I pick a favorite baby, you know? <laughs> so uh, for shade, immediately I go to blue phlox. I think that is just one of the most beautiful little plants. It doesn't bloom for very long. It's a spring plant, but I love it. I like wild strawberry because, you know, it's a good ground cover. Um, Jack in the pulpit is another one of my really favorite um, and, and one that people don't think about very often is starry campion. And mm. we do have plants and seed for that. Um, so that's a nice one that, that blooms in the summertime. So, so yeah, those are, those are my go-tos I would guess for shade. Um, so yeah, full sun is a whole other animal. Almost every plant likes full sun if it's a, if it's a native plant. So, but I like like Baptisia, um, liatris of all kinds, penstemon of all kinds, and um, purple sneezeweed. Uh, it's not really purple. The center of it is purple, but I really like that one too. I haven't um, tried the purple sneezeweed. I've tried the just the straight native uh, Helenium autumnale. Is that how you say the last? Yeah. So the, the purple sneezeweed, that's a uh, um, flexicolum. It's a uh, Helenium flexicolum. Um, that one is very rare to Nebraska actually. Um, and, and we do sell that one and it's, it's a shorter plant than the, the other Hellenium. So, um, it may be more well-behaved for a, a, an urban garden. Um, so yeah, I like that one. Yeah. So rain gardens, um, blue vervain is a great one, rattlesnake master and, you know, prairie wild onion, the, um, LM Canadense uh, Lavendulari is what that is. So that's, uh, I like that one. One I don't know too much about that we were recommended to add into the rain garden is obedient plant. I know that's kind of a semi-aggressive one. Do you know much about obedient plant? Yeah, physicesia, that's, um, it's a little bit taller one too. And yeah, it is aggressive. I guess I would equate it to maybe um, the wild mint, um, that kind of thing, but. Oh, uh, for grasses. Uh, you know, oh. there's, and, and two, can you kind of break down the difference between grasses and sedges and rushes? Cause I know that was confusing to me when I got started, what the difference there is. Oh, and sure. Sure. So, um, grasses, um, I mean, everybody knows what a grass is, but if you compare that to, um, a sedge, a sedge has a triangular stem. Um, uh, most sedges bloom, um, in the spring so they are done they're producing seed in june um 
and they're typically a lot shorter. They're, most of them are bunch grasses. There are a few that are rhizomatous, only a couple though. So um, they don't really spread that much. Um, but I was just, obviously most of our tall grass prairies are, are bunch grasses too, but. I've heard about rushes, but I don't know oh, too rushes, much about yeah. them. Yeah, so rushes are not gonna fill in an area very well unless you've got a nice wet spot. Um, so I've seen really good colonies of um, what we call Eleocharis, which is just, it's just a single stem with a little bitty ball of a, a seed head on it. Um, and they are really thin and tiny. So they're not, you'd have to have a lot of seed to, to cover an area with a, um, with those species, but um, but they are definitely made for wetland areas. And so, I mean, I'm not even sure they would be great for a rain garden unless that rain garden is almost constantly moist. So, you know, some most rain gardens are just there to catch runoff for a short period of time and then they dry out as well. So, uh, For grasses, I know I've read recently, you know, when someone is trying to make a, a very authentic prairie garden, uh, that the blue stems are super important. Indian grass is super important to include. Would you recommend any other grasses uh, for someone who's looking for like, you know, as authentic as you can make it in the suburbs, like a, a meadowscape or a prairie garden? Yeah, so so Indian grass um, is beautiful and I love it. Um, it's, it's one of those two that's a really good cedar. So um, it's pretty, pretty easy to get started. You want to just a tiny bit of of Indian grass. Um, little blue stem is great. Um, that's a good one to put in there. Um, prairie drop seed is probably my favorite prairie plant. That one is hard to get to germinate. So I recommend plants if you're going to put that in. I've uh, heard that. In your yeah. Garden. But, yeah. So we've had trouble getting uh, prairie drop seed from, you know, it's, it's one of those plants. It's kind of one of the first ones to go in a remnant prairie and so it's difficult to find when we find it we're just like oh yay there's some prairie drop seed gotta get some seed from that and it doesn't always produce seed I've got patches here that haven't produced seed in years um last couple of years have been droughty and they're just not producing so you know it's kind of it can be hard to get get seed for that so so those, um, the Boodalua's, so you've got to have, you know, your side oats grama, your blue grama. Hairy grama is another one of those plants you can't find seed for. Um, it's, you know, it doesn't produce a lot of seed. It's a, it's a very short plant, um, grows in, you know, really dry landscapes. Um, so it's hard to find that in the, in the industry anywhere. So we don't, we don't sell the seed for that either because it's just too hard to collect the seed, but we do collect some seed and we do produce some plants. So all of the gramas that I've tried so far, I just love them. I love, I especially yeah. blue grama. I love that one. So I've been yeah. planting a lot of it. Yeah. We, we call that eyelash grass because, <laughs> because of the seed head it looks like an eyelash. It's just, yeah. it's gorgeous. Gorgeous. <laughs> Um, so the last thing I wanted to give you uh, some room to discuss is this internship at Prairie Legacy. I saw that you have an opening for an internship. Could you tell us more about that? Oh, yeah. Every year we offer an internship. Um, 
and sometimes more than one um, to college students or high school seniors that want to learn about seed production or get a crash course in plant identification. Because, I mean, we, everything we do out here, we use scientific names, we, um, you know, they get to see seeds, seedlings. Um, we can do, sometimes we do surveys and we might survey a spot where the cows have grazed it to an inch high and we have to identify those grass species and uh, forb species. So they really get a good crash course in how to identify um, native plants here. Um, so, but we, yeah, we offer that every year and we're also, Right now, I'm looking for somebody with some good native plant knowledge and social media skills who can help us out with with that sort of thing. And they don't even have to be here. So, um, yeah, so we're we're always looking for people and um, you can contact me anytime for that sort of thing. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. I think the last thing and this is fitting that I I somehow subconsciously saved this to be the last question, but uh what would you say the real importance is to planting local? I know we've talked about that in the past. Why should someone feel compelled to plant native? Or what are the, you mm -hmm. know, the big reasons we should think about planting local? Oh my goodness. That is probably the most important question you could ask. Um, so I'm glad you did get to that question. Um, so biodiversity is the one word answer. And I'm talking above ground, below ground. Um, biodiversity is the thing that regulates our climate, that uh, provides us with water and, you know, medicines and, you know, just um, health. Um, so we have, you know, I said less than 1% of tall grass prairie left. It's actually next to the rainforest, the most um, endangered ecosystem on earth. We have to get, so we, we need to, whatever our local ecosystem is, we have to stop getting rid of it. We have to stop reducing it. We have, um, we've lost 83% of wild animals and half of plants in just the last hundred years. So, we just have to return that biodiversity. And and I wanna, to illustrate that, I guess I would say, you know, to, to what we can do or what we should do. Back in the seventies, um, when my husband and I were first married, it was the thing for men to go to work in a three piece suit with a leather briefcase, right? And so, um, here's my husband all dressed up in this suit with a faux leather briefcase. And in that briefcase, he's got a peanut butter sandwich. So you think about, think about your lawn that way. So you've got this bluegrass lawn maybe in your front yard because that's what your neighbors have. And that's what everybody thinks you should have. And, you know, if you're a green thumb, maybe you've got, you know, a flower patch, but all you really got there is a peanut butter sandwich, right? It's just not building biodiversity. It's, it's, it's looking the part, but not, there's no substance to it. Right. So, um, we just, we just need to think about, um, 
what it's going to do for us. So in Omaha, for instance, there, um, the housing development has been up like 35% in the last two years or so. Mm -hmm. And if each quarter acre, each, if each housing unit is a quarter acre, that's 47,000 acres. And we plowed up 55,000 acres during the ethanol boom. And now we have higher corn prices and higher soybean prices and more land is being plowed up and more land is going to, to oh my goodness, last year, the houses that were built is just nuts. So if you think about the ecological area that we have in our own landscapes, um, what we can do to help biodiversity and climate change. If you just put a third of your yard into native plants, you can restore enough biodiversity to keep our wild birds populations going. And, you know, there's just, it's just so much to, I mean, there's the food chain to think about, but, you know, there's also all that cycling of carbon and um, fixing nutrients and keeping the pests and diseases at bay and so many ecological processes that even a small patch of native plants can can help us with. So that's what we're about is restoring biodiversity. That's that's our thing. So if we can help anybody do a little bit of that, we're just so happy to do it. I'm I'm forever now going to be driving past houses in neighborhoods and be thinking of a peanut butter sandwich in the middle of a food <laughs> yeah. desert. So, like I'm yeah, forever so... now going to see every little <laughs> tiny garden as a sandwich. So don't plant peanut butter, plant a salad, right? <laughs> right. I mean, I, I love the idea of, you know, we talk about why should you do it or why is this important? And I think the most common sense but also like deeply true thing is, is what you just mentioned. And like what Doug Tallamy mentions, like most land now is privately owned. So the only real way out of it is to start taking that privately owned land and doing something with it. And the only way we're going to be able to do that is to encourage people to educate them, to do Absolutely. these, you know, kinds of community outreach and to tell people like, no, 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 no. Like, your lawn is a food desert for pollinators. Like your lawn is a food desert. And that's why songbirds populations is, is skyrocketing down. Um, so I think it's good to remind people like, look, we might not have, we might not feel like we have our hand in the bigger pie of what's going on in the world, but we do have a yard. You know, if we're suburban homeowners, we have, we have a yard or, you know, even something, it's a crazy idea. I want to explore what can urban people do? You know, you can have green roofs or, or you can have, you know, potted container, like you have a container garden of, of native plants. Um, so I kind of want to explore that too. And, and I love what they've done. I don't know if you've been to downtown Omaha recently, but they've got a beautiful food garden that they've installed kind of, you know, smack dab in the middle of, you know, a real, I guess, businessy district down there. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of tricky because some of these districts have, you know, known problems with lead contamination. Mm -hmm. So they have to kind of, you know, bring in a bunch of soil and they have to specifically do raised beds and stuff like that. But I think it's really fascinating that 
even if we live in the middle of a city or even if we live in the suburbs, we can still have a profound effect on, yeah. on our environment. And yeah. I think the biggest thing too, you know, when Ben, Ben vote, you know, he shares his, his photos of his house. He's, he's in one of these, uh, you know, one of these constructed neighborhoods that we've been talking mm -hmm. about. And you, you, it's kind of comical. You see lawn, lawn, lawn. They're all sterile landscapes. And then you see his like little native right. plant oasis right. hanging out there. Yeah. And that's yeah, the only way to, that's the only yeah. way to inspire people in a way is to, to do the work so people can see it's being done. Mm -hmm. They know, they know it's possible. Yeah. I want people to know too, that you don't have to, and his is I, what I would characterize as a wild landscape and it's beautiful and it's, you know, what he loves and that's great. But I want people to also know that insects, pollinators, birds, they don't care how you arrange those native plants. If you mm. want an arranged, you know, very tidy looking landscape, you can still use native plants to do that. It doesn't have to be wild looking. And if you can do it in such a way to entice your neighbors to do it as well, wonderful. So, yeah. yeah, there was this really cool picture. And I think it's in this book, planning in a post wild world. I'm pretty sure it was a picture that was in that book, but it showed like an option for people who live, say you live in a really, you know, ritzy neighborhood and, and you're kind of trying to keep up with the Jonases and, and not make your HOA mad or whatever. Um, they did like some really cool native pollinator plantings inside a hedge of boxwood like they edge it with boxwood like it's one of those you know fancy oh right you know, uh-huh it's aesthetic yeah. gardens and you know uh tyler moore from bu and he's the president of green bellevue he was talking about like look if if someone's got to do it that way at least they're doing it at least yeah. you know they're yeah. planning stuff there that's not lawn whatever works it's wonderful yeah yeah go for it <laughs> lovely well, it's been nice talking with you. Is there anything that I didn't think to bring up or that you haven't brought up yet that you think is important for people to oh know? Oh my gosh. You know, um, I think that last question was the most important thing we could have talked about, honestly, just, you know, telling people how important it is to do it. But um, yeah, I I think you pretty much covered it. Um, but, the, you know, we could talk prairie for days. So <laughs> it's it's a lot to unpack. And yeah, I know, I know it'll be fun to kind of in the future, you know, visit specific subtopics within that. Sure. That sure. theme. Yeah. yeah. And one thing that we could talk about at some point is, is the idea of keystone species and specialist species that um, has come up quite a bit. So those would be some topics to talk about. And like when it when it comes to, for example, when it comes to plants that you sell at Prairie Legacy or plants that you have experience with with your education, um, what would be some keystone plants found on the prairie that you think are really important for people to know about? Okay, well, I think um, goldenrods for one, um, and anywhere you can find it appropriate to put in sunflowers, those those two species are they um, harbor a lot of specialist species and they also are good keystone species. So those are two of them um, off the top of my head that I can think of. Um, I think uh, Liatris aspera might be another one that's a good keystone species. So there are actually quite a few of them and we carry quite a few of them. So 
They're fantastic. And I do have a list. Yeah. If somebody's interested in a list of, you know, keystone species for this area, I can shoot them a list. And those are all beautiful plants, but like everyone, yeah. I, I've never met a person that doesn't like sunflowers or looks at goldenrod blooming and doesn't think it's fantastic. Um, I know my background image right now is of yeah. goldenrod. Um, Cause I just, I've, I think I've got maybe six or seven different kinds of of native or regionally native goldenrod in my yard. And I just love it. It's fantastic. So. They are great, great keystone species. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for chatting with me. I've learned a lot just from today. And I know great. for someone starting out, they're going to have learned substantially more. So thanks. Thanks again you are for so this welcome. opportunity. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Plant Native Nebraska podcast. If you need notes on anything mentioned in today's episode, check our website, plant-native-nebraska.captivate.fm. I want you to know you've made this podcast special just by listening in, but if you found real value in today's talk, subscribe to our show on your choice of podcast app to get easy access to future episodes.